0: Today's podcast is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elixir? How about Elm? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered uh, to you via email. The best part is it takes only five minutes a day. Make learning part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com.
1: I think there should be an entire podcast. Like a bunch of podcasters should get together and just release clips of them discussing how much shit they go through to get Skype to work for (laughs) podcasting. Just be like episode one of Skype Socks, and it's just like dozens of podcasters bitching about Skype. It's every podcast. (laughs) And then episode two, it's the same thing. Are you still playing Pokemon Go?
0: Uh, No, because they have a bug in the game that makes it basically unplayable. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: That's just a, the regular game?
0: <laughs> no, so the, as unplayable as the regular game was, there's a bug that's been around for like, I guess a week or two weeks. Yeah, two weeks that uh, basically the distance to indicator doesn't update anymore. Oh. So, Yeah. People are still going and playing and dropping like lures at the places where you can lure Pokemon to a specific place. But beyond that, the game is basically unplayable.
1: Yeah, I don't see. I see fewer and fewer people playing it. Anyway, I started a new project.
0: Is it an Elixir project?
1: It's Rust. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) It is Ruby on Rails. It's this little upstart framework. What is happening? There's music playing. Some like rock music just played through the speakers here (laughs) like for like three seconds. Anyway, so yeah, it's this little upstart framework called Ruby on Rails. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, Sounds interesting. Yeah, they got this ORM called Active Record. I'm dealing a little bit with that. Sounds Uh, terrible. (laughs) um, The project I'm doing, so I never know how much I can actually say about the clients that I'm working with. Um, So without getting too specific, it's a large e-commerce provider. That has like several. It provides services for several merchants, and those merchants have locations, um, and obviously they have orders
0: at those locations. Wait, the client isn't us, is it?
1: <laughs> I just described Shopify, basically. <laughs> it's it, it's similar to that. Um,
0: no, yeah, I have legitimately asked me. I wouldn't no, be surprised if it was.
1: No, it is not Shopify, and it is not even a competitor to Shopify. Ah, okay so they have and they have a lot of data and the project they brought me on uh, it's a really it's a big company it's an older older rails app i'm not sure exactly how old but the project i'll be working on is picking up for something that prem was working on before he went on leave which was um they want to provide a way for their merchants to segment their audience and target them with various offers um so they want to be able to say like who are the people who order order who buy things from us at around lunchtime um, and also happen to be our top 100 customers or something like that, right, and target those people with a promotion. Uh, right now they don't have a way for people to easily do that um, self-service. So that's what they want us to do. And uh, so I've been looking into that and and getting a feel for this code base. And it's actually it's interesting because it's an older Rails code base that has a, had a lot of people work on it. And so I always expect the worst. And in this case... I mean, it's complicated because it's big, and there are definitely big models and things like that, but it's they've done a really good job of keeping it. like You can actually read through it and understand what's going on. At least I can for the first few days. Um, so, it's always a good sign. Yeah, it's always good because I, I feel like my track record on these types of projects you know something sounds relatively straightforward and i get on the project i'm like oh god like how does this thing even work i don't understand (laughs) and that's not the impression from this code base so that's good you're like oh i see how this thing works and i see that it's been around for a while obviously it has some cruft but it's definitely been well well taken care of so good on them if they're listening
0: any acts as x
1: oh yes yes there are acts as I can't remember the one I saw, but there's a bunch of that.
0: I lo- I just love those hallmarks of like <laughs> two three to three one era plugins.
1: Right. It is on Rails four two, which I was and and Ruby two three. So they've done a nice. really good job at keeping up. I don't know how much effort went into that, but obviously, um, various people at different times. I don't know. Maybe that's a recent thing. Maybe they were just like, we got to get off Rails three and they went straight to four two. I don't know, but or if they've been doing it all along. But it's pretty cool. And the conversations I had with their managers there. They were already thinking about, like, oh, the way you implement this, you know, it would be cool if it would just work in Rails 5 as well. So, like, they're already thinking about Rails 5, which is cool. Yeah. But so the feature I have to build, uh, obviously, is, like, basically what it boils down to is the users have to specify some query parameters. And you run some complicated queries based on that that involves data from the locations of a merchant, data from the orders aggregate data about orders, like how many times has somebody ordered from a given location or a set of locations. So it's going to be pretty complicated, but before Prem went on his leave, he had basically spiked out some stuff with Ransack, which is a gem, I don't know if you, have you used Ransack?
0: Yeah, I've used Ransack. Yeah.
1: It's a gem that basically exposes an additional API to things in ARel than what Active Record exposes to you, is that fair to say?
0: Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Active Record doesn't expose any API to you for ARel. Active
1: record wraps AREL, right? Right, yeah. Um, and this kind of does that, only you have more direct access to what's in AREL.
0: Well, it's more about building search forms, right? Right,
1: right, exactly. So that's what we're kind of trying to do here. But I immediately thought of you because I was like, oh, I'm going to use a gem that lets me use AREL, and AREL is private API. And the discussions that we had already earlier with the management here was, or with the developers here were like, we want to be as forward compatible as we can be. Well, I'm making a real public (laughs) API in
0: 5.1. Oh, look at that. Yeah, I thought I I told you that. Maybe. I I don't remember. Oh, is
1: that so that you could start doing the additional query builder stuff?
0: It's not even necessarily to support that, but it's more a move I'm now comfortable making because of that.
1: Hmm, okay.
0: Like, if we're looking at wholesale replacing it and swapping it out from underneath the rest of Active Record, I'm fine with just stabilizing the API. I'm not going to tinker with it.
1: Oh, well, all right then. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. That'll be welcome, I think. And then you can go back to referencing your uh, Thoughtbot blog post where you tell people to use Rel.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and people can stop can stop linking it to me whenever I mention that ARL's private API because I've never gotten that joke before.
1: <laughs> but this guy said I could use it. Oh, hey, that's you. <laughs> um. Yeah. yeah. So I've been playing. I've been playing around with Ransack. It's pretty cool. It makes us pretty approachable. Uh, there's some stuff I'm going to have to do with, like, custom ransackers where you can... I'm trying to avoid that as much as possible because it... it doesn't feel great throwing that stuff in models. But And one of the things I was talking to you about, one of the complications I was talking to you about is, like, the need to... So my ordinary tricks for doing things like this where it's largely reporting would be, like, can I create a super view somewhere and, right. like, make it, maybe make it a materialized view and refresh it once a day or a couple times a day or something like that? Can we do that? And ordinarily, the answer is yes. Unfortunately, in this case, the answer is probably no. Like the staging database dump I have has millions and millions of orders, like on the order of many, tens of millions of orders. Right. Um, I don't remember the exact count. So doing views for that type of thing is going to be hard. And also creating a view that would answer all the different types of queries that they want is going to be hard. Um, So there's going to be... Like right now, I just do all of the joins that I need to do to answer the... They have some predefined, like they call them example segments um, that they want to give people. So right now, I build all of those with a bunch of joins, and I do all of those joins all the time. Eventually, I'll probably make those joins conditional by looking at the conditions you're using and saying, like, which tables do I actually need to join um, and and conditionally join those, make it a little bit more performant. But they're concerned, obviously, with having... Users be able to generate arbit not arbitrary queries. I mean, they will be whitelisted, but you could you can make them arbitrarily complex based on the building blocks we give you, right? So they're concerned right. they're concerned about running that. Lo- they're concerned about running that on their production database. So that's the next challenge I have to come up with, and we have a few ideas on what we want to do. I think basically what we're going to do. They have a couple follower databases, so I think we're going to run queries against one of the followers. But, of course, that gets complicated, and I talked to you about this very briefly, because we still want to use the existing models if we can.
0: Well, so that's not too bad to do. I didn't get much context, right, when you, when you asked about that. Mm-hmm. But it's, if it's just for reporting, right, for that request, you don't you probably don't actually need write access to the database.
1: No, do not need write
0: access. I mean, so just overload the, the connection to globally go to that follower for the, uh, in the request.
1: Right. That's, I guess that's what I was trying to see. Like, how, how would that look? I would just say, like, active record... Dot
0: dot establish connection
1: ...dot establish connection to follower DB, and then execute?
0: Yep. Uh, you wouldn't even have to do execute. Like, everything will then just go against that.
1: Okay. And you could do it for the lifetime of that request. Or I guess I could do it... Well, here's the complicated part, right? So, like, we want to run the actual... So I lied. <laughs> it's not read-only. We want to run the actual query... Against the follower database, and then persist the result back to the actual production database
0: right okay um, so I'm, well, I mean so per request, but what I mean is more like you have a clear, specific place where it's fine to override the connection, and you'd probably still want to use a connection pool for this, right, but what you can always do is so grab the existing connection, begin active record base, establish connection wherever else, or grab the connection from the connection pool, right yep. do what you need against the follower and then just set the connection back to the old value in, in an insure block.
1: Right. Yep. That's that's what I was thinking as you mentioned that.
0: I want to make this easier. In 5.1, I want to have connections always injected at the relation level and have a public with connection method on relation.
1: That's what I was kind of hoping. that Like if I peeled back the covers somewhere, I would find like a way to say like, run this, but do it with this connection rather than, you know, this connection named in my database.yaml file.
0: Right. Yeah. No, it's a thing I, like and it, it makes sharding way easier to do if I if I provided that. It's unfortunately not as simple as just, hey, go dependency, inject the connection object all over the place. But uh, it's something I want to do. And I'd hoped to do it in Rails 5 and just didn't have time.
1: One of the other design decisions I'm considering is instead of using the same models, create namespace models that mirror the models in the actual production application. <laughs> and then just set the um, connection in the model. Because you can do that, right?
0: Kind of.
1: Or set the database, I think, right? Isn't that what you can do? I think
0: you might be able to set the database. I'm, setting the connection is difficult because there's not just, right, there's not like a connection for a model. It's, it's a thread local variable, and you want to be pooling connections, Right, so we use a middleware, or now in Rails five, we use uh, a newer concept internally that we have called an executor that wraps every request or unit of work in Rails five and checks out the connection from the pool and checks it back in when it's done. Mm-hmm. but that's that that's per thread, not per model. In theory, there's no reason that you couldn't like override it on a single model, but that would still have to be something that's done per thread or per request on that model. okay so it's a, it's a little bit trickier than just like having another model and oh. We can just override the connection here,
1: right, yeah, I guess that makes sense the The reason why that was appealing to me is because then, if I had to do custom ransacker stuff for these models, I wouldn't have to pollute like the actual existing business logic models to put ransacker stuff there. but
0: are you using Postgres, yes? If you if you run pgbouncer Bouncer in front of your database, then then actually just establishing a new database connection on the fly is re- relatively cheap, and then it's a lot easier to just override the appropriate methods in the model. What is pgbouncer? Bouncer? It's a service that you sit in front of PG that basically it, it's it's sort of like connection pooling as a service almost, but it helps manage things like uh, prepared statement caching and connection pooling and stuff at that, that. Apparently, you can do it more efficiently by putting a, another layer in between you and the database than clients tend to be able to do.
1: Interesting. Can I use that on Heroku? There is a Heroku back BG Bouncer. Hmm. Alright, I'm going to make a note to look into that. Cool.
0: That at least makes it so you don't have to worry about, like, connection pooling on your end for one-off things like this. Yeah.
1: It's, just, it's interesting because, like, these are problems that, like, I've solved before, but most of our clients don't have them. Like right.
0: like I said earlier,
1: it's like oh we need a reporting type thing. We'll just use a materialized view. It would be like the the log the the furthest I would go for an optimization. Um, so like to have to be like oh no we can't run this against our production database. And then even when we're running against the follower, these queries are going to take long enough that you're pro- we're probably going to want some sort of system where you don't execute the query directly. You create a query request and the query request uh, and then you pull against that query request object until it's completed and then you display the results. So that's going to be. You know, another complication that i will have to layer in there pretty quickly. Yeah,
0: I mean I find the restriction of not wanting to run it against the master database interesting.
1: Yeah, I haven't played with building complex ones enough to know whether or not exactly like part part of me takes them at their word that they know this is going to be complex enough and enough of a hit that they don't want to do it. But the other part of me says like, well, well let's find out. <laughs>
0: right? uh, oh, you mean like, enough of a hit in terms of like performance?
1: Yes, right, sure. And that's the worry: is that if we ran it against our production database, um, we'd be impacting the performance of like live transactions, which is not a trade off they they want to make. Sure. But I also think that maybe instead of building like this whole query request system, we just like do something really simple and release it to like one beta client, right? And see like what can one client possibly do?
0: <laughs> I mean, you could also just always stick a timeout on the damn thing.
1: Right, so nothing will ever run. It already, I think this, I already ran into a problem because the in their database.yaml, they configure the, the statement timeout to 30 seconds. And in a migration, I created this new this new data model that basically tries to keep a record of your activity at a given location. Like how many orders do you have at this location? When was your first order? When was your most recent order? And I created that, I created a table for that. And then in the migration, I was like, oh, I'll just stick the, I'll create the data here. In the migration um, using an insert into with a select Uh, and the select query is pretty simple it's just that there's a lot of orders that i'm (laughs) going through so i had to take 30 seconds and bump it up to 10 minutes
0: (laughs) ouch well doesn't that doesn't that lock the table too probably like i i put
1: a comment in the migration that's like this probably is not where this is going to live but for now (laughs) it gets me moving Um, i like it i like it (laughs) before this gets merged we're going to need to solve this uh whole we're taking down the site for 10 minutes to deploy this yeah um it's probably one of the things where it'll just have to be like an item potent rake task or something that you can run and it'll do individual inserts but that's just not something i wanted to take the time to do
0: right now while it's well, sh- and i'm goes. sure there's some concurrency option that you can set somewhere <laughs> sure maybe who knows i don't know yeah, it's funny. Reporting is one of these things, right? That's always just like it's a common problem that we still have not gotten great at just making it easy to solve.
1: Yeah, and one of the things we also discussed was they use Redshift for some for some things, which I was familiar with by name, but not really what it does and what it is. So uh, they gave me a rundown, and I've been reading through some of the documentation. Are you familiar with it? Vaguely. So it's like it's a it's one of the services from Amazon, and in there. I don't know, continued insistence that they not name anything in a way that you could possibly figure out what it does from the name. They call it Redshift, which I guess, you know, you could say, like, well, what does Postgres do? You don't know from the name. But, like, when Amazon has, like, a, you know, 50 million web service offerings, knowing which one you want to use if you want to do X (laughs) would be a lot easier if the names made more sense. Yeah. But so this thing called Redshift is an older version of Postgres, I think, like, 8-something, which is now kind of an older version of Postgres. And it's totally, like, at that point, they stripped it down, customized it for basically performing reporting-type operations on enormous sets of data and spitting out an answer. Hmm. But I'm a little more afraid of that because I don't have any experience with it, whereas Postgres I understand. um, And I understand where the bottlenecks are for the most part there. understand how to index it to get it to behave properly and i don't think that redshift is built for like let's do live queries that the user is going to wait on the result for i think it's built on the like here's your data warehouse and your business analytics people (laughs) who make like informed guesses on what interesting data might be and know what its value are are prepared to wait for however long it takes i mean this is going to be fast for in comparison to doing it against, you know, your live Postgres database, your live relational database. But but I haven't played with that yet, so that's an option as well, using something like Redshift and rather than doing the follower database. But we're going to start with the follower database and see how that goes.
0: Yeah, I mean, that sounds like the simplest option.
1: So I'm kind of looking forward to it. Like, um, it's back in Rails, which I was kind of like, well eh, okay.
0: <laughs> but,
1: like I said, the code base is, you know, you can understand it. It's large, so trying to figure out exactly where some things happen can take some time. But it's also nice that it's like a big, chunky technical problem that I can just kind of plug away at every day for the next however long it takes. Right. Um, rather than being like, oh, I got this ticket done. What's next? And I mean, I'll, eventually I, at some point I will break it down into a series of tickets, but it's going to have to all do with building this one feature.
0: Oh, it, sounds like fu- it sounds like a fun project.
1: Yeah, it'll be good. I'm looking forward to when Prime comes back from leave so I can ask him some questions. Because <laughs> <laughs> right now I'm just like, hmm, I bet he did this for a reason. And I don't know what reason that is. But yeah, the code that he left me with is actually really good. And um, I've only found a couple things that probably need to change for some requirements that are down the road. Anyway, that's what I'm up to.
0: And it turns out Rails isn't so bad after all. Yeah,
1: it turns out it's totally fine. Which is what I was saying before, right? Like it's you have a Rails code base. It's fine. You made a good choice. Congratulations. <laughs> turns out Active Records getting Oh, one of the things that happened is um in their group chat they were talking about they used this gem called default value for mm-hmm. to provide default default values for fields and they were having a problem in circumst I didn't really follow the whole thread because I I don't know enough about the domain yet to follow the exact problem. they were discussing but um, I did get to point out at one point like hey (laughs) there's this thing it's an attributes API you might be able to use it uh, without using an external dependency to specify default values uh, in the cases that you're interested about here and they were interested it's it's cool to also be able to tell them like it's simultaneously cool and somewhat disappointing to be able to tell them like you can use it today but you need to do like these small things basically you need to alias some methods right
0: Oh, yeah. If you want, well, if you, only if you want to define custom types.
1: Oh, OK. So if you're not defining custom types, then there's no. There's, right. Because yeah. it's like the serialize for database got changed from something else to serialize.
0: Typecast for database got changed to serialize. Typecast from database is now deserialized. And typecast from user is now cast. Right. And then there's some caveats with the attributes API in 4.2 with regards to when it actually gets used. It's it gets used like 80% of the time. That last 20%, though, when I say 20%, I mean 20% in terms of, like, code paths, not in terms of how common those code paths are. So, like, uh, it gets used with where, but it won't get used if you pass an array to where, mm. et cetera. Interesting.
1: Anyway, yeah, I suggested that like it's probably not it's it's not a thing they want to pursue now, but it's certainly something to keep in mind, especially as they move to Rails five when that's a hundred percent of the time.
0: Yeah. I mean if you're using it, if you're just using it for uh specifying default values, your code will work fine in four two and will be completely forwards compatible. Cool. So I'll tell them to take a look at that.
1: So yeah. anyway, new client, excited, good technical work, really chunky technical problem that I haven't really had in the rails projects I've worked on recently, like the the rails projects I've worked on recently, as I alluded to, have all been basically we're in a lot of trouble we need either we need mostly it's been like our site performs terribly, and then you look at the code and you're like, no wonder why it performs terribly, and then try and fix it but <laughs> um, which are fun in their own right, but uh get a little tiring after a year of that type of work
0: yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. what have you been up to
0: well. For starters, feeling very validated in my decision to not have thread local connections in Diesel. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just—it's been issue triage mostly. Tri- I'm hoping to release Rails 5.0.1 tomorrow, uh, and I was—I was, ho- was hoping—and ha- have failed just barely. Uh, I was hoping to get Diesel 0.7 out today, finally, but that'll probably have to wait till this weekend. So, but just issue triage on both accounts. I see.
1: How's your libpq rewrite coming?
0: Uh, that's coming along well. Um, once I got the basic, like, structure out of the way, it turns it turns out to be a relatively simple protocol, uh, especially when I just opt to ignore all of the things that I don't need to support, like uh, bulk data copy, which is apparently there's a SQL query you can run called uh, copy from standard, uh, standard in,
1: mm-hmm.
0: at which point you can then just pass it significant amounts of data, which right. I guess is if you're inserting, like,
1: Insert from a CSV.
0: Yeah, it's like I guess if you're inserting twenty thousand rows or something, the actual overhead of the dollar sign one comma dollar sign two comma dollar sign three comma dollar sign four close parenthesis comma open parenthesis dollar sign one et cetera et cetera twenty thousand times (laughs) is potentially significant. But like excluding the SQL query itself, the actual overhead of the data that you'd be sending is relatively low without using this. Anyway, it's just like, it's one of these things that you would have to explicitly write code to take advantage of it. And I don't have, I'm not planning on using this in anything that has a front end that would give you that level of API access. So that's, you know, that's out the window. Deprecated authentication forms out the window. One thing that I did find in the Postgres Wire Protocol, which I'm really, really glad to have on the diesel side of things, is it actually, when it's a small set, it's like 15 settings or something like that. But when one of, like, 15 runtime settings changes, you'll just get a message from the back end unsolicited telling you that it changed. Uh, And one of those is the encoding that uh, it's going to send everything over the wire to you in. This isn't, like, for data. This is specifically for message passing and stuff like that. But, like, Rust has strings. Those strings are UTF-8. And there is... There's no alternative. I mean, other than use a library, right? But the the string types in the standard library only support UTF-8. So one thing that I'm taking advantage of now that I just never had access to before, which is really cool, is like if you ever accidentally change the encoding to something that isn't UTF-8, which would severely break things, I can now just error right then and there, which uh, lets me remove several places where I was validating the UTF-8 because I can now be assured that it's... Always going to be valid UTF eight and validating UTF eight is a linear time operation, so it was never happening on a hot path or on um, significant length strings. But that's a nice a nice win. Yeah on the on the replacing libpq thing, though, I had an interesting issue that was opened up on uh, the libpq sys uh, repo. libpq sys is, is just the Rust wrapper around libpq, and it's literally nothing other than link to the C functions and expose direct like one-to-one Rust mappings with no abstractions on top of it. And I just auto-generated the whole thing from a bunch of header files. And what I do when I'm building it is because on Windows, it's uncommon for something like libpq, which you just get when you install Postgres, which is technically a user-facing application, right? It's, it's very rare for those to then modify the path. On Windows, the binary path and the uh, path used to find dynamically linked libraries are the same. So there's a binary, though, that, that Postgres provides called uh, pgconfig, which will point you at the, at the directory that libpq is in. And <laughs> on Mac, if you install through Homebrew, at least, right, that's going to be user local lib. And if you also happen to have installed libjpg through Homebrew, there will be a libjpg in user local lib, which is not binary compatible and does not contain the same symbols as the libjpg that is provided by ImageIO Framework on Mac. And for whatever reason, the way I was telling it to link Postgres and search for Postgres in whatever directory pgconfig tells me, which in this case is user local lib. So for whatever reason, me telling the linker, like, hey, go look for, user, uh, go look for things in user local lib was having it use libjpeg from user local lib over the system one, which would lead to a runtime error because uh, it would not be able to find the proper symbol because I guess the framework is getting dynamically linked instead of statically linked. Now, I have no clue what on earth is trying to link against LibJPEG in the first place. But I ran into this after uh, I updated my version of Rust once, and apparently Cargo fixed some other bug that was leading to it now doing the right thing, and I'm apparently doing the wrong thing. But I just assumed it was a Rust bug when I first ran into it, and it turned out uninstalling LibJPEG from Homebrew fixed it. <laughs> so I've, I did that, but somebody else opened an issue, and they're like, hey, like... I can't, this, what? And I'm like, oh, I assume that was an upstream bug. Uh, does anybody have any clue why something's trying to load libjpg or how I can tell uh, the linker, like, specifically only look for libpq here? And apparently the answer to that question is no. You can just tell it where to look for things. But I gave a escape hatch, and I still don't really, I, like... There's an escape hatch that you can use if you really need to, and I still don't really know why the problem occurred, and I don't feel happy with the solution, but that was a fun one. And I'm pretty sure it's lib, like it happens when compiling PQ or anything that depends on PQ so I'm pretty sure it's libpq that for some reason relies on some function from libjpeg, <laughs> but I have no clue how or why. That would be surprising, but okay. <laughs> it's the only common denominator. Okay. Cool. Uh, so yeah, that's been my week in a nutshell.
1: All right i have a very important question okay what are you gonna call this new lib pq
0: uh right now it's called diesel postgres 2 <laughs> and and then on rails i think i'll just call it postgres 2 or in ruby right going off of the mysql2 yeah. uh
1: yeah make sure you keep it at 0.3 point whatever forever Oh
0: god right <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I can kind of see it with MySQL 2 because they're still at like they just added prepared statement support in the in the most recent release. So I guess I can sort of see it being zero point X at that point. Although, really, are you, like if you're only adding new features, is that really ever going to be an API breaking change?
1: Who knows? You never know. So now they have prepared statements. So are you gonna is Rails gonna like go in five one and bump the required version of MySQL two?
0: Uh, we did that in five zero.
1: Ah, so now MySQL two people get prepared statements. Correct. Ooh, exciting for them.
0: Which is all. Which and that is the reason that we finally removed the MySQL uh, the legacy MySQL adapter. Cool. The the plan uh, until we found out MySQL two would have prepared statements for in time for Rails five. The plan was to rename the MySQL two adapter to the MySQL adapter and rename the MySQL adapter to the legacy MySQL adapter. Uh, mm-hmm. We're probably still going to rename MySQL two just to MySQL in a future release after we have. Feel like we've had sufficient releases where the MySQL adapter does not exist, that there will be nobody who like, oops,
1: right. I tried to upgrade from Rails five to Rails seven, <laughs> right, without going through six. Uh, what's happening?
0: But yeah, so we removed the MySQL adapter because uh, as, as instead of just renaming it, because that was the only r- real reason to use that adapter was if you actually just legitimately needed prepared statements for whatever reason.
1: All right, <laughs> sounds like a busy week for all. Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: Open source man, it never sleeps.
1: Yeah, that's. I, I was thinking the other day, like we have some people here that are um, Ian, one of my coworkers in Boston, has been working on an Elixir project that requires multi tenancy, and so there's an, uh, in Ruby there's the Apartment gem, which yeah. does some of that, and so there's an Apartment X because that's what they do in Elixir. They add X to everything. It's like there's one of, a, of acts as. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so he's been updating it to work with Ecto2. And I was like, it's pretty cool that, like, this is client work and they need you to do it. So that's, that's cool. But ultimately, you're working on open source for the week and yeah. getting paid to do it. So you are full-time open source. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it was so. actually,
0: I had an interesting discussion because I, I gave my contributing to open source stock at Shopify today, uh, which I'll also be giving at abstractions if any of our listeners are going to be there. Uh, you should come check it out. And, and there was an interesting discussion I had with somebody afterwards because, like, one of the big things that people have to understand when they're submitting a pull request to open source, right, is that you're asking somebody else to maintain your code for you until the end of time. Mm-hmm. And even if you intend on being around to maintain it, right, nobody's going to make that assumption because the majority of contributors don't. And it's it's interesting. I had an interesting discussion about just how some companies, like, then end up wanting to potentially focus more on open source specifically because it removes maintenance burden from them and, pu- and want to push more things upstream as a result of it.
1: Yeah, I can see that, and and it kind of jives with a lot of what I've seen in my Twitter feed recently complaining about, like, I used to think that a project I had that had 30 dependencies had a ton of dependencies, and now, you know, I have 30 direct dependencies, never mind the dependencies, the transitive dependencies.
0: Right, I um, just see Gary Bernhardt Street, where like an empty Node app with just the standard build tools that everybody use, like I think it was Grunt and Browserify and Express or something, has five hundred dependencies. Holy shit!
1: <laughs> I did not see that. That is, like, that is a lot. Like that's an empty
0: app. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it, I, I think it kind of jives with that, as like people are like, "Well, I can reinvent this," which is what we used to do, basically. Uh, or I can just try and piece together things in a sane way. And I don't think it's wrong to try and piece together the existing stuff. So
0: No, I don't. I do think, I've like, I've been seeing a, a, a bit more chatter about this lately, and right, one of the big reasons that people argued for something like left pad existing is like, well, I don't want to deal with the edge cases. I want somebody else to be dealing with the edge cases or security vulnerabilities or bugs or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Which is fine, but it's also like, so, if you have a, a a module for padding strings and does nothing else, I'm just I'm using left as a scapegoat, but this really goes for any like I guess micro dependency. Okay, do you really think anybody's actually maintaining it, or looking at it, or like thinking about edge cases? I think there's a happy middle ground between the one function dependency and active support, but I do think there's a, a decent amount of value in something that trends more towards the active support scale of things. Again, somewhere in the middle, but more, like farther away from one function than, than, than a lot of the, the micro-dependencies mm-hmm. go. Simply just because you'll have more eyes on it. If it's a project that actually has active maintainers who have things that are being done on it.
1: So like one of my favorite libraries from back in the JavaScript days when I was doing a lot of JavaScript is underscore JS. Right, exactly. Um, and that is trends. I mean, it doesn't go anywhere near what active support does, but like, it is a group of functions that all hang together under a common theme. Um, so you could have, like, string manipulation functions that you wish JavaScript had, right, and yeah. release that as a library.
0: Yeah, underscore, I think, is the perfect size for something like that.
1: Right. And it's actually, like, code size-wise is actually really small. Right. And, you know, it's less relevant these days because a lot of that ends up getting built in. But
0: anyway. Is that still faster than the direct browser implementations in a ton of cases, though?
1: Yeah, there are places, if you look through the code, where it's, like, <laughs> we're not going where it doesn't use the direct browser implementation, even if it's there.
0: I'm thinking of Lodash, actually,
1: right? Right. I, aren't they merged at this point?
0: Have they? I, I don't really follow JavaScript at all anymore.
1: There's an underdash. Okay. Um, I mean,
0: seems reasonable.
1: I don't know. Maybe there is. Who knows? I, I feel like I read something about how they're going to merge.
0: Seems reasonable. And they were trying days. to
1: figure out, like, what name... People were trying to figure out what name to use, and somebody proposed under underdash. Which is <laughs> pretty good. But
0: yeah, all like, right. I remember... I don't know if it's still true, but back when I was still using it, like, they didn't use array for each because it was slower than just doing a manual for loop with indexing.
1: Right. Yes.
0: Which is baffling to me, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> right. All right. We should wrap up. I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
1: All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm 74.
0: As always, rings and reviews on iTunes and Google Play are much appreciated.
1: If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website.
0: Thanks for listening to Bike Shit, and we'll see you next time.